If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, we'll read verses 16 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 28. Lend your attention, this is God's word. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in Matthew to chapter 9. We come to the second miracle in this final sequence of three miracles, which we've said have escalated in terms of the might and the power that they set on display as Jesus shows uh, that even something as permanent as death is but sleep before him and something as irreversible as blindness yields to his light. And so we come to verse 27. This is God's word. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Father, how good you are in the gifts that you give. How rich and how wonderful 
how lavish your kindness, Lord, and how you maintain these gifts, Father, uh, though we have um, rebelled against you. How wonderful that even in that state of rebellion, you sent forth the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to rescue and to redeem, uh, to bring light, uh, though we had preferred darkness. And so even now, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might see and understand uh, the Son of David, the King whom you have sent, uh, full of power and goodness. And that looking unto him, Lord, in faith, that we might receive from his fullness. He might continue to build us up in our understanding. Or, Father, you might cause the light to dawn for the first time. We rejoice that you continue to do this, Lord. Continue to show such kindness and grace unto sinners. Be pleased to work these things even now, for we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. How are your eyes? My eyes are really bad. Looking at some of you, yours are too. Sharing. I can hardly see without my glasses. It's kind of striking that with them I can see just fine. It's a little piece of glass cut at a certain angle and poof, high definition. <laughs> it's incredible how kind the Lord is to give us glasses. I mean that in a literal sense. There's even a relatively simple operation that would restore my vision entirely. Some of you have had that. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's amazing that the Lord in his kindness would grant that sort of knowledge to fallen human beings, that they understand the way his creation works and they can leverage advances in one area to alleviate misery or difficulty in another area. God is good. But as far as I know, uh, for all the progress of science and technology, uh, we cannot reverse blindness in the literal sense. I'm talking in the literal sense. I'm sure that we're trying. Maybe somebody knows particularly. I'm trying to stay off the computer, so I did not Google it. But for now, blindness is another area where we, as human beings, are stopped abruptly and reminded that creation is broken at a very basic level, beyond our powers to fix. We're reminded that basic powers, life, sight, speech, only the Lord can give such gifts. The sad and hard fact is that in Adam's sinful rebellion, we have forfeited the right to all of God's gifts. Now, in the light of that, it's stunning that God still lets us use them so regularly. You're all using some of the richest gifts of God right now. 
even if you don't acknowledge him as your maker. In this, we're supposed to see his patience and his kindness, which Scripture tells us is intended to lead us to repentance. That acknowledgement that we have no right to these things that he continues to give us. But we do well to remember that such kindness is not to be mistaken as a right. Just as we do well to remember that if God withholds a gift, it does not mean that that person is uniquely sinful. In fact, Calvin exhorts us to understand that when we meet these two blind men, we are to be reminded that God is beholden to no one in terms of giving these basic and most excellent gifts. Because all have forfeited them in sin. That's difficult to come to terms with. Agreed? Agreed? But it's in the light of that staggering loss in Adam that we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Father's gift to fallen man to restore unto men all the choicest gifts from God. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ literally restores sight to two blind men. He does what no one else can do. And by this act of power and goodness, we learn that he has come to restore and to bring man unto his intended end. Now he restores us, enlightening the eyes of our hearts to truly know God. And when he returns, he's going to bring the gift of vision to its highest height. Vision in excelsis. <laughs> For when he returns, we'll know as we are known and we will see as we are intended to see. Looking upon the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord designed us to see for a reason. He gave the gift of sight for a reason. To look upon his beauty in adoration and awe. So let's consider this morning the gift of sight. First, the misery of our condition. Second, the son of David. And third, the channel of faith. First, our miserable condition. The story continues, and two blind men follow Jesus, crying out to him for mercy. We do not know whether they were born blind or whether they lost the gift of sight later in life. We simply meet two blind men afflicted with a very difficult form of physical suffering. They are imprisoned in a world of darkness. They are alone, in a sense that's difficult to plumb. They are vulnerable in a way that we, with our eyes working, do not know. 
and there is no hope of earthly cure. None can touch this affliction. Physical suffering is part of the general misery of this life. Evidence that the world is under God's wrath and curse due to sin. Scripture rehearses this plainly. In Genesis 3, God places enmity, pain, and anguish near the heart of this created order, this age. Paul writes, creation itself is in bondage to corruption. Creation itself is in bondage to corruption. One theologian explains, all the suffering that strikes people here on earth, a short life, a sudden violent death, famine, plagues, wars, defeats, childlessness, painful losses, deprivation of goods, impoverishment, crop failure, cattle mortality, and so on, all has its roots in sin. Indeed, not always personal sins, yet still in sin in general. This is the plain testimony of Scripture. How dreadful sin is if all such suffering is God's just curse and wrath upon sinful man and indeed creation itself. Make no mistake, beloved, in our fallen Adam, we have forfeited the right to God's gifts. God gave them freely to Adam. In a sense, Adam had a right to them until he turned his back on his maker and we in him confirming his rebellion, beloved, with the impulses of our hearts and the works of our hands. We have forfeited the right to God's gifts, among them the gift of sight. Do you understand the basic gift of sight to be a gift from God? Stunningly, none of us have the right to see in this age. Do you believe that? That is a hard statement to come to terms with. Mark how this postured us in humility. To see God's goodness extended so freely so consistently, so widely. We meet these two blind men, and we ought to think, I have no right to the gift of sight. I should be them. What differentiates me from them? God's preserved for me, for you, the gift of sight. He did this even when I blatantly refused to acknowledge him. He does this for me too, even though the body is dead because of sin. Beloved, if we have no right not to die in the physical sense, we have no right to see in the physical sense. Coming to terms with that really postures you to see the vastness of God's goodness, doesn't it? That he does unto enemies, beloved. Can you see it? It also prepares us for kindness towards the blind. 
It prepares us for kindness towards all those who are experiencing physical suffering. The flesh sees these blind men and concludes that they are worse sinners than we. Scripture says, do you think you're somehow better than them? Scripture asks that question plainly. It forbids that conclusion plainly. Matthew says nothing about some particular sin that led to this particular suffering. Instead, seeing them, we ought to think, this could just as easily be me. And with that thought in mind, we begin to ask, well, how can I render good unto those in such condition in light of the good that I have received? Beloved, we're all going to come to some form of physical suffering. Outwardly, we will all be subject to some particular iteration of corruption, even if it's simply going the way of all flesh, beloved. Let us do unto others as we will need done unto us in one form or another. We have an opportunity before us even now. A brother with broken kidneys, broken eyes, a sister with a broken mind in need of rides by those who have eyes, kidneys, motor skills, to which we have no right, but rather in which we have an occasion to do good. The Lord calls us to do particular good to particular individuals, beloved. It is the bonds of our union in this household which will serve as the parameters of the account which we render, the occasion for the good that he calls us to do. Yet deeper still, these two blind men remind us of a more profound blindness, the blindness of sin. For mankind is blind to the truth of God. Even though his glory shines forth plainly in this amphitheater of creation, man wanders around as a blind man, as blind men at the height of noonday. Man in his fallen state does not have true knowledge of God, does not and cannot possess saving knowledge of God, and knows very little about what the shape of righteousness is, if anything at all. And this is the condition that Christ now restores. He heals our understanding. He gives true knowledge of God. He restores sight. We even speak that way, right? Do you see? Do you see? I keep asking you. Meaning what? Not do you see me. Do you understand? We use vision as a metaphor for the more difficult faculty of the mind, the understanding. Christ has come to fix that understanding now by the wonderful working of the Spirit. To restore man in his wits. 
yet he can see what is so plainly on display everywhere around him. The excellencies of who God is on display in creation and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the excellency of the way of true righteousness upon which Christ is now leading us. We're tempted to think that his excellencies are primarily on display in healing the eyes of the blind, and they are, and he will. But not yet. Now we get the excellency of understanding, knowledge, being restored in that faculty that God has given us, but to which we've employed to all sorts of dreadful ends. So let's consider second, the excellencies of Christ, the son of David. The blind men cry out to him as the son of David. Interestingly, the Lord does not respond to their pleas immediately. Did you notice that? They cry out to him, but he doesn't respond. He allows them to follow for a while, and only once he enters the house does he speak with them. And there he questions them, and he touches their eyes, and he heals what is otherwise incurable. And then he instructs them to tell no one. The verb is quite strong. He sternly warns them to tell no one. And they ignore him. So they haven't quite seen. What do we see of the excellencies of Christ in this encounter? Well, first we see his wisdom. They call him the son of David. Who's David's most famous son heretofore up to this point? Solomon, the figure of wisdom. And we've already tasted of the excellencies of the greater son as he is taught, as no one has ever taught. Appealing, as Solomon does, to the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, in a way that excelled even that great son of David. But we also see it in his conduct, and here we glimpse it. He waits to heal them until they're in the private setting of the house, and then he instructs them not to spread the report. That strikes us as strange, but he's already earned some credit in our eyes, I hope, by this point, and so we expect him to act in wisdom. We expect that even this attests his wisdom and righteousness. There's two excellencies which shine forth in the privacy of the act and the strong insistence on the silence. First, we see his wisdom in that he understands the hearts of his people. He has true understanding of the sinful heart of men. The instruction not to spread the word was in order to protect the people from a false notion of his messiahship. You can think about the exchange in John 6 when he feeds them all, and what do they do? They try to make him king right there. They didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. They didn't understand that the choicer gifts, that all of his earthly miracles were to prompt their hearts heavenward. To understand that the riches were not to be found in the physical particles of light, but the riches were to be found in the portion of true knowledge and wisdom that he alone imparts. But they weren't ready. He understands the nature of man's sinful heart. And so he restricts and curtails even here, trying to protect them. Man wants a political and material Messiah. 
we still want it. It's not who he is. Terribly sorry. But he knows better. So when they disregard him, it's much to his, much to their discredit. They show that they don't see. Not really, not yet. They've had the gift of physical sight restored, but that heart which bows to the command of the king is slow in coming. They continue to do what's right in their eyes. Now make no mistake, there's no one-to-one command. This is the time of telling, beloved. I'm here telling of these works. I am not violating Christ's command here by rehearsing this excellent deed for you. Now is the time of telling. But it does remind us that just because something seems good to us does not mean it is good to him. And therein we see that we're called to subject our understanding to his always. It also prepares us to receive the difficulty or delay from our Lord in trust. He didn't answer their requests right away. They're calling out to him. We don't know how long the journey was till he got into the house, but we're invited to see a delay from request to petition granted. The Lord does this to us constantly. He would have us persevere in prayer. He would try our faith. Whatever the shape of the response, we are positioned to receive it from one who hears and is wise. whose every action is steeped in excellence, beloved. This too postures us in humility. And we see also the king postured in humility. Again, rehearsing the excellencies of Christ, it's not just his wisdom, but it's also his humility that's on display. He does this miracle in the privacy of the house. He's approachable by these Two poor, lowly men, and this as the king of kings. The title, Son of David, signals that we're considering a king. We're considering not just a king, we're considering the king of kings. We're considering the one for whom all creation has been waiting. We're considering the one of whom God says, ask and I will give everything as your inheritance. And he's approached by two blind men. I can't imagine you know very many important people. But even if you do, I can't imagine they're this approachable. Even when I was a teaching assistant, the undergrads had to schedule an appointment with me. And I was nobody. (laughs) The king of kings welcomes them. And he also does his wonders quietly. Think about how much we make of so little we do. He restores sight and says, just keep it to yourself. I'm not here to receive glory from men. Here to receive glory from the Father. He'll, he'll glorify me when it's time. That's refreshing. Magnificent. No small part of his glory is that he gives his full attention and powers to the lowliest. They're beggars, 
They're crying out. They have no strength or standing to commend themselves. They would be welcomed on the street, not in the halls of kings, tables of nobles. Here the Lord of glory comes to them with an intimacy that staggers and grants the gift of sight. It's difficult to overstate his excellency. It really is. Mark, this is the king God's given us. Mark what kind of king we deserve. We're quick to criticize our kings. So foolish. So selfish. Yeah, what are you? Foolish. Selfish. And that in a low condition. <laughs> Imagine if you had high standing. It would only amplify your folly and selfishness. Perhaps in the strange oscillation of relatively good and bad kings, we see in God's providence an occasion to learn about what we deserve. Because at best, we muster relative good and that inconsistently. At worst, we'll turn on those who are closest to us, and that rather violently. Perhaps in the oscillation of the things of this age that is passing away, just as the oscillation of sight and blindness, we see a teaching mechanism to show us the king that he gives so freely, even though the material element of his kingdom is reserved for his return. But it is difficult to overstate his excellency. Can you feel it? That he gives the gift of sight. That he can give wisdom and understanding. And that he's pleased to do so to those who have no claim upon it. Truly, this is a fantastic king. This string of miracles signals that he is the Messiah. Isaiah 35 envisions the time of God's gifts being restored. The time of refreshment in the wilderness. The time of blindness being healed. We see him restoring the forfeited gifts in Adam. All who come to Christ in faith receive the rights of the children of God. That's what it means to be a child of God. It means to be an heir. It means to have the rights to inherit the gifts of the Father. And that means for all who belong to Christ in faith, your sight will be restored when Christ returns. So when the iteration of corruption has its way with your body, which it inevitably will, which very well could lead to you losing your sight... As a child of God, you can be confident that that's temporary and that he will restore and bring to highest completion the gift of physical vision. But I trust that you know that that's reserved for his return. Do you know that? I'm going to need you to know that because inevitably you're going to call me at the end of your life and be like, I can't see, I'm mad at God. I'm be like, look, I preached a sermon December 17th telling you that this was going to happen. 
I prepared you for it. Do you think you have the right to see now? You don't. But in Christ, the right to see then is granted to us. That means we can bear whatever iteration of corruption, whether it be a fading sight, be a fading hearing, be a fading taste, be a fading touch, whatever it is, in dignity and hope, knowing that the end is not darkness. The end is not silence. The end is not speechlessness, but rather seeing and hearing and speaking the glory of God forever, beloved. The restoration that he has caused to dawn now, which we receive in faith, will be made whole when he returns. But mark now the gift that he gives, understanding that means we can seek it from him. We've rehearsed the excellencies of teachers before. There are many competent teachers in this world, but none can impart knowledge. As the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water. The Lord Jesus Christ can impart knowledge. That means as you come to his word, as you enter into his presence, into the public assembly where the deeds of the Lord and the excellencies of the Lord are rehearsed, be praying to receive the light which comes from these things. And know that he delights to impart them. But this is who he presents us to have. These are excellent gifts, beloved. True knowledge of God. The true knowledge of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. True understanding in the way of true righteousness in which he leads us. This is what he is restoring to us now, beloved. And this means we can seek these gifts from his hand. Because if Christ promises something, we can seek it with confidence. One last point I want to press home in the excellencies of Christ. Calvin points out that the main source, or at least one of the primary sources of our blindness, I'll wait for you all to watch my son leave. <laughs> Calvin says that one of the primary sources of our blindness is our self-love. Our self-love. The best way to get our minds off ourselves is by getting them onto another. In considering Christ in his wisdom and in his humility and in his power and his approachability as the king of kings, God supplies us with no mean person, mean, small, insignificant person upon whom we are called to set our minds as a cure for that strange disease of self-love, which blinds us to the glory of God. But it's true, now we behold it in faith, which is the final consideration, the instrument of faith or the channel of faith. The Lord questions them concerning faith. But more specifically, he questions them concerning their belief in his power to do this or his ability to do this. We can compare the healing of the leper where the focus was on Jesus' willingness to heal. The leper comes saying, I know that you're able. If you're willing, you'll heal me. 
hear Jesus questions them concerning his ability to heal, his power to heal. Perhaps we can see in this an acknowledgement of the magnitude of what's about to happen, the restoration of sight. If if cleansing a leper and restoring sight to the blind are both miracles, one of them is plainly more miraculous. But the point is plain when we consider them side by side. All power belongs to Christ, and he alone can grant what is necessary, and he is willing to grant what is necessary. We can also see from this the Lord's wisdom once more in that he challenges us perhaps in areas where we are lacking. The men seem to know that he is willing. They acknowledge that he is the son of David. The son of David, a figure in a fountain of mercy, right? Have mercy upon us, son of David. But then Jesus challenges them, saying, not am I willing... But even this, do you think I'm able to do? Do you think I'm able to restore sight? Nobody can restore sight. Are you sure I'm able to do this? He questions them. He presses them. And between the two exchanges, we see a good shorthand for what it means to have saving faith. It means to perceive and to trust in Christ as the one who is willing and able to save. That's a good shorthand. To see and trust in Christ as one who's willing and able to save. We might press it a little bit further. To see and trust in Christ as the one who is willing and able to save me. Now, some are going to have trouble in one place of that definition. Some are going to have trouble in another. Some wonder if he's willing, as we've met. Some wonder if he's able, which we're tempted to think. Everybody's going to struggle with trust. And I think there's a degree to which we all pause over me, as in, why me? I I don't understand. But we receive in this portrait and indeed in all of these portraits side by side the confirmation that Jesus is able to save and he is willing to save. He restores sight to the blind. He brings the dead to life. He can make wise the simple. From his fullness he freely gives. Have you come to him? Do you continue to cling to him? For in him is the fountain of life and light. God's Favor open on the sinful man. We close with one observation regarding faith, and it's one that we made before. Faith is not strength. There's something pleasing in God's design. That through a channel of weakness, he imparts salvation. That's what strength is. I mean, that's what faith is. It's looking outside of oneself in acknowledgement 
of native weakness, isn't it? Thus, paradoxically, to speak of strong faith is to speak of acute awareness of weakness. With me? Do you see? Beloved, the glory of faith is its weakness in a way that parallels the glory of Christ being his lowliness in this age. Faith is content to look foolish. You believe what? Wait, you think what? Faith is content to claim nothing for itself beyond being God's designated instrument. Faith is content to find that its sole beauty consists in joining us to Jesus Christ. The fountain of God's grace and truth from whom we have all received. If you've seen him through the eyes of faith, continue to pray with Paul. May the eyes of my heart be enlightened that I might know what is the hope of my calling, what are the riches of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the power that is his work in us towards those who believe. If you have not seen, I pray that you will. For there is no one like this king. There is no God like our God. And he is to be found now in favor, beloved, as you come to him in faith. May he grant you the heart to do so. Let's pray. Mm. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for the excellencies and the choiceness of your gifts. We pray even now that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart as we set before us our King and our God, uh, the one whom you have sent uh, to grant us your gifts, Lord. We pray that more and more would be brought to see and to rejoice. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.